0: He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot wrote this in his journal shortly after he graduated from college. And Jim Elliot was no fool. He, he, he took to heart Jesus' words when Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jim and four other missionaries they had dreamed and planned of bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the Hurani people in Ecuador. These people were, were people that were unreached; they had never heard of the gospel. They were also incredibly dangerous to outsiders. They didn't trust outsiders; they attacked. Outsiders, But but Jim and the other missionaries, they sensed a call from the Lord to reach this people for Christ. They would die in the process as martyrs. But in doing so, many would be saved. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, and Peter Fleming. These were the names of the five missionaries who gave their lives knowing they couldn't keep it. In order to gain what they couldn't lose, namely life with Christ. And I might, I might add, in order that others may gain that too. This morning we, in our passage, we read about Stephen, who is another martyr. The first martyr recorded in the book of Acts, and definitely not the last. But now, the circumstances under which Stephen died were different. But I think when we look at it, the reason was still the same. Jesus. If Stephen was not a follower of Jesus, then we probably wouldn't be reading about his testimony and his death in our passage today. We've been working our way through the first half of the book of Acts these past few weeks. We've seen how the church is formed in the first five chapters. And in the last two sermons, we've also seen this church persecuted, facing challenges and opposition. And in today's passage, we we'll see that persecution continue to grow from arrests and flogging now to stoning and and death. Now, our passage is a really long one. It's focused on Stephen, the persecution he faces, and the response he gives. But when we kind of zoom out a little bit from the passage, we're also going to see how Stephen's persecution is an example of the greater persecution that the early church faces, and ultimately how, how God works through all of that. So, if you have your Bibles at home, you can turn with me uh, to the beginning of our passage, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Prior to our passage, Stephen had just been chosen to serve the people. He's been doing his ministry, he's sharing the gospel, he's performing signs and wonders to confirm that message. And again, we begin to see more. More opposition. But this persecution grows because of Jesus. That's what this opposition is is about. It's not about Stephen helping to take care of the Hellenistic widows. They don't have a problem with that. It's not about Stephen even necessarily doing great wonders and signs among the people. Fundamentally, the, the opposition that Stephen faces arises because it has to do with who Jesus is. And subsequently, what Jesus has come to do. Luke's recounting these events and he gives us a picture of these Jewish leaders who lead the persecution. The first thing they do is they reject Jesus' followers. The Jewish leaders bring this charge against Stephen. They say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God and this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and we will change the, uh, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So these charges are because Stephen is saying these things about the law, the temple and, and God that they, they don't like but really when you look at it, Stephen is just saying what Jesus himself said before he was crucified. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Now these uh, Jewish uh, leaders of the synagogue, they were going against Stephen. But in doing so, they were also going against God. Now they couldn't refute Stephen's words. Because the text says he spoke with wisdom and with the spirit. And so what they do, they, they had to resort to instigating men, stirring up people, setting up false witnesses to get him in front of the council to be tried. And when he finally appears, the, the council takes one look at him, and they see a face like an angel. It's such a big contrast. You have these false accusations, these people trumping up charges against Stephen. You know, everything that they're saying about Stephen is either false or, or even misleading, and it doesn't line up with Stephen's appearance. He looks like an angel, but not everyone sees it, I guess. The high priest, then, he asks Stephen if if these things are so. Then Stephen launches into this incredibly long history lesson. Now, we, we skipped over the speech during the scripture reading, but it's important, not just because it's a history lesson and helping us to understand the Old Testament, but because Stephen is making a point. It's a long speech, but, but as he shares, as he speaks, Stephen is very careful in selecting what stories to bring out to make his point. Because otherwise, there's not, you know, there's not really a need for these council members to hear their own history. They know it just as well as Stephen does. It actually kind of comes off a bit offensive. You know, if you're telling someone something that they should be an expert on. But the point Stephen is is making is that Israel, these people, they resist the Holy Spirit and they reject Jesus. In Stephen's speech, he gives specific examples of when their fathers, those who came before them, they continually rejected God-appointed messengers. Verse 9, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Verse 23, when he, that's Moses, was 40 years old, it came into Moses' heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling. And he tried to reconcile them saying, men, you're brothers. Why why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 35, Stephen continues, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 39, the speech continues, Our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Ten times in Stephen's speech, he mentions the phrase, Our fathers. And then in verse 51, he switches to your fathers. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen, by the end of his speech, is turning the accusation back onto his accusers. You are just like those who came before you. They resisted the Holy Spirit. They were uncircumcised in their heart and in their ears. They refused to listen to the prophets, the people who were sent by God to deliver God's word to them. As your fathers did, so do you. He calls them stiff-necked. It's referring to... You know, Back then when you put a yoke on a farm animal and the animal stiffens its neck because it's trying to refuse the yoke, to stiffen the neck is this idea of disobedience. And it's a term that actually first comes up, I think, in the golden calf incident, which Stephen mentions in his speech. That's when the Israelites disobeyed. What's the point? Our fathers refused to obey the one whom God sent to lead us out of Egypt. Moses, the same person who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like, uh, from, like me from your brothers. It, it's a passage in Deuteronomy that oftentimes we, we see it pointing to Jesus. And that's Stephen's point here. that Their fathers ignored, reviled, rejected the prophets that came before. And now you did them one better. You killed the ultimate. Prophet, priest, and king. The righteous one, Jesus. They think Stephen is the one disobeying the law, but instead it's them. And now, again, they continue to, continue to reject Jesus by rejecting Stephen. They resist the Holy Spirit, and Stephen indicts them for this. It's the, the same spirit that fills Stephen up as he ministers, as he, as he speaks God's word. Prior to our passage, the apostles chose seven men to help with the task of the widows who were in trouble. Chapter 6, verse 3, these men were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Verse 5, Stephen is singled out as one of these men, full of faith, and it explicitly says he is full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, as he's disputing those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, it says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And later on, verse 55, it says again that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. You get this emphasis now. The, The point here is that Luke is making it abundantly clear which side God is on. Making it clear how God is speaking, who God is speaking through. The Holy Spirit is empowering Stephen for ministry. And these Jewish leaders continue to resist. So much so that they, they cry out with a loud voice and cover their ears to stop listening to Stephen. That's how much they're resisting the Spirit. And there's a second point that Stephen also makes with his long, long speech. These people are missing the point about the temple. To them, it's a place where God dwells, yes, but so much so that they have confined God there. They have sought to manage God as as if that was even possible. Look at what Stephen says in his speech again. Stephen begins with Abraham, when God appeared to Abraham and made his promises without a temple, a, a dwelling place. Later on, he mentions David who asked to find a dwelling place for God. But God would not allow it. Instead, it was Solomon who would build a house for him. So he was fine with waiting. And then he cites from Isaiah 66. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You know, Stephen doesn't continue quoting but uh, Isaiah, but it's feeding into a selection of this passage. The passage in Isaiah 66 continues like this, you know, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. These leaders have These people have missed the point about true worship. True worship is accepting God's revelation and obeying God's word, all of which was communicated through Moses, the prophets, and now Jesus. They they fail to see that true worship is in Jesus Christ. And if they rejected him, they were rejecting what the temple, what the temple was all about. Now, All this, the rejection of Jesus' followers, the resisting of the Holy Spirit, the rejection of Jesus, this is all feeding into the persecution that is growing against the early church. It feeds into persecution that even happens today. Now, there's many reasons for opposition against faith and persecution against Christians. There's political reasons, cultural reasons, but I think when we kind of boil it down a little, but the main reason, and it should be the main reason, is Jesus. Our sermon series has been exploring the church unleashed, the identity of the church as God's people, and the mission, its mission, to be Jesus' witnesses. If persecution were to happen to the church, let it be because of Jesus. Let it be because we are living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the passage unfolds, these Jewish leaders are incensed. They're enraged at what Stephen was calling them out on. They clenched their teeth at him, and ultimately they cast him out of the city and stone him. Now, we're not sure maybe this was part of their trial, or maybe it was a mob after, afterwards, but we do know it, it wasn't legal. I mean, only the Roman government had the right to sentence people to death. But regardless, in this last section, this is what happens to Stephen. He's he's, he's stoned, he dies. The church suffers and it scatters. But look, the gospel still spreads. Stephen is in the midst of being executed, stoned, dying uh, as a martyr, and his response is amazing. And I think it's because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live and die like Christ. Throughout this entire passage, there's this comparison, this similarity between Stephen and Jesus. He spoke with wisdom like Jesus. He uttered the words that Jesus himself said. He was put on trial like Jesus, and now he's suffering and dying like Jesus. His last words, look at them. He says two things. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Compare that with Jesus' last words. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What mercy and compassion must have filled Stephen up to be able to say these things as the people are taking stones, big stones, and throwing them at Stephen. And I think it's because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think many of us look at a passage like this, look at someone like Stephen and think, wow, there's, there's no way I could respond like that. Some of us would rather pick up the stones that were thrown at us and throw it right back at the people. It doesn't matter if they have the high ground. Is, is Stephen just this unattainable example? You know, how, how could we say to our, our oppressors, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Scripture talks about being filled with the Spirit. It's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. But if you know anything about grammar, it's a passive verb. That means the action is being done onto you. You're not the primary one doing the action. And so how do you obey a passive verb? You know, it's one thing if God says, like, fill up with the Spirit. In the same way, like, fill up a glass of water. But that's not what he says. He says, be filled with the spirit. Same way that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? The word for spirit can also mean wind. And and so when scripture talks about being filled with the spirit, I think the readers would have thought more about being filled with air than a glass being filled with water. And I think there's a difference there. Picture a, a sailboat. Some of you have maybe been on a boat before and maybe on a sailboat. A sailboat requires power beyond beyond itself to move, right? It needs wind to move. It needs a continual filling of the wind to push the boat forward. But in order to move, you also have to ready the sailboat. You have to do your part. You have to put the sails up. You have to adjust things here and there. And so that when the wind comes, it has something to push. And so there are things I think that we can do to respond attentively to where the Spirit is leading. We rely also, though, on the power of the Spirit. And in Stephen's case, I think, God listened to his prayer. Saul is there when Stephen cries out, do not hold this sin against him. And though, in a you know, few verses later, Saul ravages the church, he causes the church to suffer greatly and to scatter, eventually we'll find in the rest of Acts that Saul encounters the Lord. And he goes on to spread the gospel even further. In this passage, we we see the martyrdom of Stephen, but this passage also gives us hope in that martyrdom can still advance God's mission. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Luke, I think, makes this connection between Stephen's death and the greater persecution that arises from that against the church. He he sandwiches uh, Stephen's burial in between these two verses about the church being scattered and the church enduring even more suffering. But it's not all bad news. Stephen's death begins this greater persecution against the early church, but what also ends up happening is the gospel is spread the church is scattered, yes, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But that also means that the gospel begins to go forth to the nations. God is working. And in Acts 1.8, at the very beginning of our sermon series, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now in Acts 8.1, you flip the one into eight, and Acts 8.1, those witnesses are moving beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Like, skeet, uh, like seeds that are uh, scattered across the field, they will take root, grow, and bear fruit. And it gives us hope in God and his plan of salvation that, that even something as terrible as someone dying for their faith, God can turn it for his glory and the good of his people. I began this sermon talking about Jim Elliot, a missionary and a martyr who came 1,900 years after Stephen. What Jim Elliot and the other missionaries set out to do was was dangerous. Their families knew it. Their, Their wives discussed the possibility of becoming widows. But they also knew that the good news of Jesus Christ was not something to be kept to themselves. On January 6, 1956, these missionaries made contact with the Hurani people. An older woman and a young man and a young woman, they they came. These missionaries gave them some gifts. And it all seemed to be going well. Then two days later, on January 8th, a party of 10 of these people, 10 of the Hurani, made their way to the beach. They came with spears. And they were there to kill the missionaries. And they had been led to believe the missionaries had attacked the young man and woman, even though that wasn't the case. But they couldn't have been convinced otherwise. And they were there to retaliate, to kill before they were killed. And they came upon these five missionaries and they lured them out and they threw these spears and they speared one of them as, as one of the missionaries was reaching for the radio to report the attack. And, and he died and he fell out of the plane. And two of the other missionaries are hiding behind a log and they begin calling out in the middle of the attack, we just came to meet you. We aren't going to hurt you. Why are you killing us? One of the attackers who was there that day later wondered, he was speaking to one of the sons of the man who he murdered. Why didn't he flee into the jungle? If he would have fled, he surely he would have lived. But instead, these missionaries, they just waited for the attackers to come and to spear them. Now, they didn't know this at the time, but the missionaries before had vowed to one another before God that they would not defend themselves against human attack, even in the face of death. You see, these attackers, these Harani people later also wondered, why hadn't these outsiders used their guns to defend themselves? Now, they, they saw the guns, they knew they worked, they knew these missionaries were capable of defending themselves, but they chose not to. They, they asked, why would the outsiders let themselves be killed rather than kill? Because that's what they, they would have done, that's what they were doing. And eventually that was the question that led them to allow Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, and, and Rachel Saint, Saint, Nate Saint's sister, to come live with them. And that question was answered when they heard the story of why these missionaries wanted to come, make contact, and tell them about another man, Jesus, who freely allowed his own death for the sake of all people. And they came to faith. And in this Christianity Today article written by one of the sons, he writes, God took five common young men of uncommon commitment and used them for his own glory. They never had the privilege they so enthusiastically pursued to tell the Hurani of the God they loved and served. But for every Hurani who today follows God's trail through the efforts of others, there are a thousand outsiders who follow God's trail more resolutely because of their example. This success withheld from them in life, God multiplied and continues to multiply as a memorial to their obedience and his faithfulness. Whether it was 2,000 years ago or 65 years ago, we see examples of people dying for their faith in Jesus. And even when the church may suffer or scatter, God's mission continues to advance. The gospel continues to go forth to the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for these heroes of faith, for their examples for us of giving up what we cannot keep to gain eternal life with you and so that others may know you. Father, help us to be filled with the Spirit, to be emboldened to share the gospel and to live for you. In Christ's name we pray.
1: I'm giving you my heart, all that is within. I lay it all down for the sake of you, my king. I'm giving you my dream. I'm laying down my rights. I'm giving up my pride for the promise of you. and I surrender all to you all to you and I
0: Heavenly Father, this would be our prayer, that we would surrender every square inch of our entire lives up to you, that we would offer our lives up to you as an offering of obedience. Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore.